You are now listening to the December 4th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have forgiveness, sermon, and the God of Abraham. First, let's begin with forgiveness. Hello, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries listeners. I'm Joseph McDonald, and this is Forgiveness. Those that realize they have been forgiven can forgive others, whereas those that have not experienced the grace of forgiveness by God may find it difficult to forgive others. A few weeks ago, we considered this aspect of forgiveness in the story of the slave who owed his master 10,000 talents. The story appears in Matthew 18. The slave that was forgiven of his debt of 10,000 talents did not realize the magnitude of grace that was extended to him by his master. That was the reason why he failed to forgive his fellow slave who owed him 100 denarii, a minuscule sum compared to the one he was forgiven. How about you? Have you forgiven others who committed an offense against you? If you have not forgiven others, you may have to ask yourself this question. Have I been forgiven by God for my debt? As we mentioned above, if you have been forgiven by God, you can forgive others. If you find it difficult to forgive others, you have to examine yourself whether or not you have truly been forgiven by God and whether you realize the magnitude of debt that you were forgiven for. How does one know whether he or she has been forgiven by God? If you just think, I am forgiven in your heart, would that constitute being forgiven? Let us turn to the word of God, and we shall consider how to figure out whether we have been forgiven by God. In Luke 7, There is a scene where Simon the Pharisee invited Jesus to a dinner gathering at his house. In that scene also appears a woman who was a sinner. She heard Jesus was in Simon's house, and she came to see Jesus. When she met Jesus, she openly demonstrated her love for Jesus. She held an alabaster jar of perfume. And standing behind Jesus, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair and began kissing his feet. She then broke the vial of perfume and poured it on Jesus' feet. Simon the Pharisee then came to this conclusion that Jesus was not a real prophet. He believed a real prophet would not allow for a sinful woman like her to touch him this way. Simon said in Luke chapter 7, verse 39, Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. In Luke 7, verse 40 through 42, we find Jesus pressing on Simon with a question, defending this sinful woman. And Jesus responded and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. The one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he canceled the debts of both. So which of them will love him more? How would you reply to Jesus if you were Simon? Which one loved more? One owed 500 denarii and the other owed 50 denarii. It would be reasonable to think that the person had been canceled more debt would love more. Simon the Pharisee also thought that way, and so he answered that way, and Jesus said to him, You have judged correctly. Jesus then brought the matter to a close in Luke chapter 7, verse 47, when he said, For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little, loves little. 
Jesus is telling us that the amount of our love for him is in proportion to the size of our sins that we have been forgiven. If I have been forgiven a lot, I would love Jesus a lot. If I have been forgiven a little, I would love Jesus a little. What do you think? What should you look for when you want to gauge how you have been forgiven by God? Indeed, the way to find out whether I have been forgiven is to ask myself how I love Jesus. If I love Jesus a lot, I have been forgiven a lot. If I love Jesus a little, I think I have been forgiven a little. There are two people in this parable, Simon the Pharisee and a sinful woman. Did Simon the Pharisee really have less sin than the sinful woman? At a casual glance, it seems Simon should be less sinful than the woman. He is a Pharisee, and the Pharisees are known to be pious, while the woman was a sinful woman, and her sinfulness seemed to be acknowledged by the others in that scene. However, it is not that simple. The Pharisee displayed piety outwardly, but inside they were corrupt. They showed themselves off as a righteous person and took pride in being the keepers of the law. They presented themselves in various rituals, offering sacrificial gifts at the altar, fasting, offering charity to the poor, and praying in front of people. They wanted to look different from others, and they wanted to be praised by the people. Jesus called these Pharisees a blind guide and a hypocrite. In Matthew 23, verse 26 through 27, it says, You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, so that the outside of it may also become clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Simon's sin was not little. He did not realize the magnitude of his sin inside of him. He thought maybe he had a little bit of sin, and he just needed to take care of that small amount of sin. In contrast, the woman knew her sins were huge. The scripture does not tell us exactly what sins she committed or how grave her sins were. We just know that Jesus acknowledged her sins and forgave her of her sins. The key point of departure here is that she already knew and realized how heavy her sins were. How much sin do you think you have been forgiven for? How heavy was your sin? Have you loved Jesus as much as the sins that you have been forgiven? This week, reflect upon the magnitude of your sin compared to the forgiveness that Christ has given for you. That's all for today. We will continue to discuss what the Bible teaches us about forgiveness next week. Descend to us, we pray. Cast out.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Christmas faith. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. So Mary and Joseph are betrothed. They're basically, we would say, husband and wife, except no sexual intimacy, and they're not living in the same place because Joseph is off preparing a place for Mary. So when it's discovered that Mary is pregnant, Joseph is like, oh man, can you imagine how that hits you? You love this woman. You love her dearly. You're looking forward to having this family. You're looking forward to things going on. And now, what are you going to do? She's committed adultery. So Joseph, being a righteous man, he could have brought it public. He could have wanted the law enforced, the woman caught in adultery, it would be punishment by stoning. He could have done, but Moses, be, uh, Joseph being a righteous man, he says, you know, I'm just going to put it this away quietly. I don't want to draw attention to her sin because I'm not the father of this kid. And so with all that going on, look what happens in verse 20. And as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the prophet said, and Isaiah said this, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until 
she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So Joseph, a righteous man, a godly man, and he's visited by an angel that, let me reassure you, Mary hasn't done anything wrong. What's going on is fulfillment of all the scripture promises concerning the Messiah's return to the earth. Those going all the way back to the book of Genesis, where there's a promise of the Messiah coming to redeem us. Now, we're introduced to Mary in Luke chapter 1. So let's go to Luke chapter 1, and we'll start with verse 26. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Matthew, Mark, Luke, a couple books over to the right. Luke chapter 6. In the sixth month, verse 26, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, the angel Gabriel is the angel that the Lord uses to give good news. Archangel, very big responsibility. And he gets to be the guy who I'm respect of, these, you know, the angelic spirits. But you have to understand, he gets to bring the good news. Always his job. He has a fun job, maybe. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. This time, it's probably about five or six acres, maybe 10 acres, 50 people. It's a very small village. And you know, if you've ever lived in a small town, everybody knows everybody else's business, right? Angel came to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Unbelievable. She's probably 13 to 15 years old. Now, that's not weird in that time for young people to marry early. Life was shorter. It's just not uncommon. It wouldn't be uncommon for her to be helping her mom run the house when she's 10, all right? So she's mature in that way. And of all the people in the world, in all time, to choose to be the earthly mother of the Messiah, it's this young girl, Mary. And now Mary's thinking, wait, 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 how can this be? I'm a virgin. I'm betrothed. Joseph and I haven't come together. How is this going to happen? The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. What obedience and humility, right? Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Lord, this is impossible. Lord, I can already see the ramifications of this are going to be extremely serious. People are going to think that Joseph and I, Joseph is going to think that I, Joy, and yet it's a bittersweet moment, isn't it? But she said, you know what? Whatever your will is, basically. Behold, I'm your servant. Whatever God wants to do, I'm here to do it. You know, what if God asked you to do something that puts you on the spot? What if God asked you to do something that made you very uncomfortable or might even cause you to be shamed? I just want to say for the rest of her life, Mary experienced shame and derision for bringing what people would call for decades an illegitimate son into the world. When they were trying to hit Jesus the hardest, they would call him illegitimate. You're an illegitimate son. You know, it just never ended this stuff. You can imagine, like I said, living in this tiny village out Nobody would have anything to do with you. Nobody would talk to you. Your parents didn't understand. 
It's not me. It's the Holy Spirit. How can this be? I still don't understand that, do you? I don't understand how the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. I don't understand that. It's miraculous. <laughs> Mary, Mary, so faithful and so trusting when everybody would look at her really would be so shameful. Mary and Joseph were in a time where they were under some really intense challenges. The first challenge was the political challenge they were facing. It was hard for Jews in the Roman Empire to live their lives. They were persecuted by the Gentiles and by the Romans who dwelt in the land. They were forced to tax, forced to work. I mean, the politics of the time, Herod was especially paranoid that somebody might challenge his kingdom. He was a king. And when somebody's talking about king of the Jews, Messiah, throne of David, that word gets out. That's not good politically. That's going to uh, scare somebody. The, uh, the other thing that I think of is that they were being challenged, especially religiously. Many of the Jews of their day were not following God. They were not believing what the ancient prophets had to say about the word. They didn't follow and believe the word literally. They didn't follow the word that way. I, I can't help but think today about how People who claim to believe the Bible don't believe it's literal. People choose to believe some things are literal and some things are figurative, kind of based on their philosophy and what they might want uh, the word to say. For instance, the Bible says, and I know I might sound like a dinosaur saying this, but I just want, I want to point this out. The Bible says there was a worldwide flood. And there's a fossil record of this and all, but many believers believe the Bible, believe the Bible, but it's, it's not to be taken literally as a worldwide flood. It was a localized flood and it affected people. And so what's recorded was really the record of a localized flood. Flood, it was just kind of exaggerated. The Bible says the world was created in seven days. Literal 24-hour days. Because the word for day that's just reached day is a day yom in Hebrew. Yom means one 24-hour day. It doesn't mean an age. There's a different way that you could say first age, second age, third age, in a longer period of time. But it uses this term 24-hour day, yom. But because of evolutionary hypothesis, some believers have tried to, let's squeeze in what science supposedly says. And you've got to remember that science, even evolutionary science, is evolving all the time. It's not what it was when Darwin said something about it. It's change keeps changing. Now, some evolutionists, are, they're called theistic evolutionists. They believe, okay, we are to the point that this just couldn't have started all by itself. There had to be a beginner. So they're called theistic evolutionists. But we, we, our presupposition is we can't take what the Bible says literally. It couldn't be. It just couldn't be. So those are day ages. It's just a figurative thought that God created everything. And so the Jewish mind, it meant in a week. That there was an Adam and an Eve. Well, God started life. And eventually, there was mankind, as we know it. But man evolved after God started the spark of life. Well, the only problem with that is if there wasn't an Adam and Eve, then there wasn't a garden, there wasn't sin. We don't have a sin problem, and we don't need a savior. I mean, just so many things that are important to the plan of salvation, just fall away. Now, this is an important point. Jesus believed in a literal flood, worldwide flood. He talks about it. Jesus believed in a literal 
six-day creation. Jesus believed that there was an Adam and an Eve and that they sinned. The things that many people are taking figuratively, the Bible speaks of as literal. And my concern is, where does that stop? Who makes a decision as to what's literal and what's figurative, huh? I mean, is there a committee someplace? No, it's just whatever, whoever wants to think and, and put their ideas and try to make the scripture tweak into what they have to say. You know, the Bible, well, okay, that's a whole nother subject. Getting back to the story, Mary and Joseph believe God's word. I want to emulate that. The way that they were able to withstand the pressures of the culture upon them, and the way they were able to move forward through this experience that we call Christmas was they believed God's word. They didn't doubt. They trusted what God said, and they believed that it was true. The Messiah would come literally to the earth, literally into the world. There were many Jews who didn't believe that. But Jesus came literally into the world. And when he says he's coming back literally to the world, I can expect that he is going to do the same thing. He's literally going to come back. But there are many... Amen. But there are many people, even in the religious world now, who have a tough time believing God's word to them. For instance, here's a very great man, a godly man, one of God's men, his priests. And we read about him in Luke chapter 1. And look at verse, uh, oh, we'll start with verse 5. We're introduced to a man Named Zachariah, he is Mary's aunt Elizabeth's husband. Zacharias was a priest. And once in a lifetime, a priest had the opportunity to minister God to God in the holy place of the holy temple in Jerusalem. Let me look. We'll start this in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Priests could only marry women who were also in the the tribe of Levi. Now, within the tribe of Levi, there were 24 divisions, 24 priestly divisions in the family of the tribe of Levi. One of them was the division of Abijah. You can see it. It's listed in the Old Testament. So Zechariah was of the division of Abijah. So his name actually would be Zechariah Abijah. Now, there were, I believe, 13,000 priests who qualified to serve in the temple in Jerusalem. But obviously, 13,000 men could never minister at one time in the holy temple. They needed like 25 at a time to be ministering Inside the temple and outside the temple, 25 men is usually what uh, was needed for the immediate help in the temple around the building itself. You understand, the temple wasn't a place where the people gathered. The people's worship was outside. It was outside in different courts around the temple. But then the priests could come in and they could minister in the temple, which had two big rooms, basically. One room was called the holy place. And in that room, there was uh, three pieces of furniture. There was the menorah, that seven-branch candlestick, a huge menorah that needed to be constantly maintained so it didn't run out of oil. It was supposed to be burning forever, an eternal light. Then in the middle, in front of this huge curtain that separated the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant and the Ten Commandments were, from the holy place was an altar of incense. So this huge veil, that was the veil that was torn in two when Jesus died and said, it is finished. And that would have been the veil that Zechariah was going to be standing in front of as he was putting incense on that altar. And then on the other side, across from the uh, huge menorah, was a table that the holy bread was kept on, and it was offered to the Lord. So you needed priests to take care of, of the lamp. You needed priests to take care of the bread, baking it, keeping it 
on the table and priests to prepare the incense and to burn the incense twice a day in the temple. So how do you get 13,000 people in there? Well, they couldn't. Many of them could never expect or even hope in a lifetime to ever get to have that special privilege. So what they did was each of these different divisions would have an opportunity to send 25 priests to the temple to serve. Now, the way division of um, Abijah was, they had about 350 priests. Still, that's too many, right? So how do you get 25 out of the 350? Well, they put all the priests' names in a box. They're called lots. They would pull out the names, and they would read the name, and they believed that the Lord... It was the Lord's choosing and not, you know, some favoritism. It would be the Lord that would cause the right names to be drawn. I said you could live your whole life as a priest and never have that privilege. Apparently, Zechariah had lived. He's very old and has never happened to him in his life. And so can you imagine his excitement when his name was drawn? And for two weeks, did I tell you they would go for two weeks? to minister in the temple. So they would be there two weeks. That was all the time they had because they kept this rotation going. So for two weeks, he would be there ministering to the Lord. And he, had the, he was given the task of offering the incense twice a day there before the Lord. I can't imagine how excited he was. Now my life is complete, you can imagine. Well, let's read on with that background. Both Elizabeth and Zacharias were Righteous before God, verse 6, blameless in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty. So you know what that is all about now, right? I told you a whole lot to just, there's a phrase. So while he was doing this, he's offering the incense. Ah, one more thing, one more piece of background. After that incense, first in the morning, then in the evening, once you had put the incense on the altar, you came out and the crowds would be worshiping morning and evening there in front of the temple. And you, standing at the top of the temple steps, would raise your hands and you'd bless the people with the priestly blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you his peace. That would be the priestly blessing pronounced twice a day on worshipers in the temple. That was an important part. So while he was serving as priest and his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. And fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall name him John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. I just want to digress and say something. I want you to look again at the end of verse 15, it says, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Before he's born, he is a person who can be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches here and other places by indirectly at this point, that child not yet born is a person that the Holy Spirit can come upon before they're born. Jesus is called that holy thing when he's, he's just being conceived. At conception, there's life. So think about these things. It's important to think about these things. And Zechariah was troubled. Fear came upon him. He says, you're going to have a son naming John. He's going to be filled with the Spirit. Even from his mother's womb, he's going to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Verse 18, and Zechariah said to the angel, 
how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Not the thing to say. You just ruined the party, okay? Gabriel was offended, all right? I've never heard an angel say anything like this, except here. And the angel answered him, I, you know, he said, how shall I know? And he says, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. How can you know? I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Little twerp, you know. <laughs> it's not what he said, but I wonder what he was thinking. And so he says, okay, you can't keep your mouth shut. All you have to do is speak words of doubt. Okay, behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which were fulfilled in their time, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. Remember, they're all out there morning and evening, the incense, they're waiting. What's taking so long? I mean, he offered the incense already. What's, what's up? The people were waiting for Zechariah and they wondered at its delay in the temple. And when he came out, what was it supposed to do, guys? It blessed the people. But instead, it says, and when he came out, he was unable to what? Speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained quiet. Now he's starting to express what he saw and what happened. And uh, they're saying, well, something went on. I don't know what it is, but something happened in there. And when his time of service ended, he went home. So sometimes, you know, during that two weeks or after that two weeks, he went home. Not only did uh, Mary and Joseph believe God's word and put their faith and trust in God's word, they faithfully lived for the Lord. They were faithful in a time when people were unfaithful. They were faithful in a time to obey God, to please God. Joseph was called a righteous man. Remember, God said, Joseph, you're, God has seen you're a righteous man. The word righteous there is, is a word tzaddik. Think of the sound pizzame, tzaddik. Tzaddik means righteous. If you're called a righteous man, you're a tzaddik. It's a blameless person. If you're a Gentile and a Jew calls you a tzaddik, that is an extreme compliment. I've had that happen twice, where a rabbi and another Jewish guy has called me a tzaddik. I thought, well, talk to my wife, but, you know, it's a compliment. God says, you're a righteous man. You're a godly man. He lived his life to please God. And Mary also had this intense heart for God. She says, God, whatever you want for me, I'll do. What has God spoken to you, gang, that God might want you to do? But you're saying, if I move forward, it might make me look crazy. It might bring shame on me. My family might think, what are they going to think about me? Don't let that stop you for from moving forward with the plan that God has for you. Don't let it be botched up by a lack of faith. And they continue to keep their faith in God, even, this is important, even when they didn't understand what God was doing. They kept keeping their faith in God, even when they didn't understand what God was doing. Faith is not knowing. Faith is not seeing. Faith is not understanding. But faith is trusting God for what you don't know. Trusting God for what you don't see. Trusting his word. If he's told you something, believe it. It's The check is written. Go cash it. You can count on it. God's promises are as sure as his word. Mary and Joseph, they trusted God and they considered with God all things are possible. I don't know what's happening right now. I don't know why it's happening I don't know when it's going to stop, but God, I trust you. And sure enough, after a while, say for Joseph's sake, Joseph saw, ah, God, you have a plan in all of this. God, your plan was that you were going to appoint me to be the earthly custodian for the son of the most high. What a privilege, God. Forgive me for even thinking anything else.
when Mary and Joseph were called to Bethlehem, that was probably one great test. You've got a wife who's nine months pregnant. She's due any day. There's no way you're going to take your wife out of town. But this decree comes from Caesar in Rome, who one day, I don't know, had a thought, I'm going to tax the world. Let's tax the whole world. So to do that, we need a census of the whole empire. So this decree goes out, but you've got to understand, it wasn't via email. It wasn't instant, instantaneous. It took a year for that word to go out to the entire empire. So a year before the decree came for all the world to be taxed, uh, to Joseph and Mary's attention, God had prepared this whole situation so that Joseph and Mary would be forced to move to go to the, his hometown, and that was the town of your ancestors, rather, where you had to go for the census. There is no way they would have gone to Bethlehem, that was his town, unless the government of Rome said, you must go there. I would never have done that to Leslie with any of our three kids unless someone compelled me to do that. It's completely against all our senses, all our sense of responsibility. So they begin the journey. Mary, I don't know if she rode on the donkey or if, I don't know. I, if I were nine months pregnant, that would be the last thing I'd want to do. How about you, ladies? But it was a perilous two- to three-day journey. And there were robbers along the way. It was dangerous. And here they were going through, and they come finally to the city of Bethlehem. Why is it important where he's born? Because the prophet Micah said the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So God had to get this nine-month pregnant wife from the wrong town for the Messiah to be born to the right place for the Messiah to be born. And he used ungodly man thousands of miles away to make a decree. That is the providence of God, isn't it? Throughout this whole story, you see the providence of God over and things that seem unimportant that have these huge implications for the birth of Jesus. I also see in them the example of obedience. I don't think I ever thought of the Christmas story as much as I do right now as a as an example of obedience. Obedience means submission. Both Joseph and Mary, they submitted to God. God asked them to do hard things. They did what God did, asked them to do. Here's something I read that I want to share with you. Well, this Christmas story is one of obedience. It tells of how a young woman likely really a girl by today's standards, received a call from God to take on what at that time must have seemed like the biggest responsibility ever. And it tells the story of a man who could have used many social conventions under the Jewish law to cast aside this girl, but instead listened to what God directed him to do. The woman, of course, was Mary. The man was Joseph. And both, in their own way, chose obedience that at times must have brought them discomfort and perhaps some pain. But their willingness to listen to God provided all of us with the greatest gift of all, the Savior who delivers us from sin and death. To sum it up, we get eternal benefit from these two people being willing to say yes to God. Their obedience paved the way for us to be saved from our disobedience. Your obedience to God, it may have a ripple effect. You may have no idea all the people that you will affect by simply obeying God and doing the things God tells you to do. 
in his word, you do what God says. And if he tells you expressly in some other way you felt led to do it, you do it. Who knows the effect that you're really having? And you might not only, you'll only see that when you stand in heaven and God says, look, look what that did when you did what I asked you to do. I believe that uh, from the story, we can pull out four things. And I want you to leave you with these. Believe and trust God's word. Don't doubt it. Don't try to change it. Believe what it says. Live for the Lord, not for yourself. It's very important that you live for God and not for yourself. Trust God for what you don't understand right now. Trust God. If you can't figure it out, trust God. You get worried, it's not going to help you. Trust God. Obey God's word. That's the Christmas story handed out to all of us. It's like God saying, okay, you can be an extension of Joseph's and Mary's life if you do these things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for Jesus, our Savior. We thank you that through your word comes eternal life and also through your word comes faith. Through your word comes encouragement. And we ask that we would leave doing what you say. Hearing comforting words. Fear not, I'm with you. Being encouraged by what you say. Being obedient to what you ask us to do. In Jesus' name we ask and thank you. And everybody said, amen, amen. God bless his word. Did you know that your baby
You are now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour of our broadcast program. Here at Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, we strive to aid in the spiritual maturity of our listeners. Since 2000, we have dedicated our lives to make disciples of all nations through internet broadcasting or through our CD delivery program. Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. All you have to do is search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries to listen to or download this week or past week's programs. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. The following program is called The God of Abraham. Hello everyone, my name is Terry from the God of Abraham. Last time, we looked at Genesis chapter 23 and saw a shift in generation. Sarah died at the age of 127. We mentioned how Sarah is the only woman in the Bible whose age of death is recorded. That's how important Sarah's position was in the Bible. When Sarah died, Abraham went to find a burial site. We looked at the culture of buying and selling land in the Near East at that time. Abraham seemed a little frustrated as the Hittites made it sound like they would just give him the land but ended up negotiating for a long time. When they mentioned 400 shekels, Abraham paid the money right away. The Hittites called out a high price of 400 shekels since they thought Abraham would consider 400 shekels too expensive and try to lower the cost. However, Abraham didn't say a single word and bought the land for the entire price. At that time, one acre of land was worth four shekels. The land Abraham bought was about 10 acres, so 40 shekels would have been a suitable price. However, Abraham gave 10 times that cost without any complaint. It seems like Abraham was not interested in buying the land for a low price or the right price. Abraham was only interested in buying Sarah's burial site in a lawful way without considering the amount of cost. Eventually, that land lawfully became Abraham's land. It was a land bought with money. This land became an important and symbolic place in Israel where Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, and Jacob and Leah were buried. This land belonged to Abraham and his descendants. After Sarah's burial, chapter 24 starts by saying Abraham was now very old. Chapter 24 is about elderly Abraham preparing a wife for his son Isaac. We mentioned that this is the longest story in the book of Genesis. It's because the story of Isaac's wedding has a very important meaning. The institution of marriage contains God's amazing mystery. In the beginning, God created people. After God made them into man and woman, he defined what a marriage is. In Revelation, which is the last book in the Bible, the wedding banquet of God's Son, Jesus the Lamb, appears. It's the wedding of Jesus and the church's bride. Therefore, a wedding contains a blueprint of salvation. 
In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, the apostle says the mystery is profound. Therefore, when we look at Isaac's wedding, we can see the relationship between the church members and Jesus the groom. We'll continue to look into this story. Last week, we saw how Abraham sent his trusted servant to his hometown to bring a bride for Isaac. The servant asked, What if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Then Abraham said, Make sure that you do not take my son back there. Then Abraham said something very important. He said, Since God promised this, the promise will be fulfilled. Therefore, a bride who doesn't follow you here is not the bride God has chosen. We can see how Abraham trusted God wholeheartedly and had discernment based on God's word. Abraham really appears to be the father of the faith now. This elderly servant did as Abraham willed and took ten servants with him to the city of Nahor in Mesopotamia. Then he said a very specific prayer to God. He stood by the well and prayed, See, I am standing beside the spring, and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, Please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, Drink, and I'll water your camels too, let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. Today, we'll look at what happened afterwards. The elderly servant prayed for something that was difficult to happen. If someone by a well asked for water, it would not be difficult for the other person to offer water. It would be a courtesy. However, it would not be easy for someone to volunteer to give water to the camels. Let's think about it. A camel normally drinks about 26 gallons of water. The big container of water inside a water dispenser that some people use contains 5 gallons of water. 26 gallons would be about 5 times that size. Let's say the bucket in the well was a 5-gallon size. It would be very difficult to draw water with the 5-gallon size bucket. To give water to one camel, one would have to draw water 5 times with the 5-gallon size bucket. How difficult would that be? The elderly servant brought 10 camels with him. Water needs to be drawn 5 times for one camel. For 10 camels, one would have to draw water 50 times with the five-gallon-sized bucket. Since it's such a difficult task, there's no reason for someone to first say, I will also water your camels. Let's read Genesis chapter 24, verses 15 through 20. Before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. The woman was very beautiful, a virgin no man had ever slept with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they have had enough to drink. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and drew enough for all his camels. Before the servant finished praying, Rebecca appeared and acted according to the prayer. The Bible explains who she is and how she met Abraham's qualification. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. This shows that she is Abraham's relative. It says that she was very beautiful. In Hebrew, this translates to meot tobot. When God created the world, he saw all that he had made and it was very good. The same expression is used here. She must have been very beautiful. It also says Rebecca was a virgin. When she appeared, Abraham's servant asked for water and she gave him a drink just as he prayed. Then she drew water for the camels too and ran to the well to draw enough for all the camels. Rebecca was nice enough to go through such an extent to serve a wanderer in this way. She was well suited to be the wife of Isaac, the promised son. Her outer appearance and inner nature were both beautiful.
Afterwards, Abraham's servant didn't hastily decide that she was the one, but without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. He waited to see if Rebekah would finish giving water to all the camels. He waited steadfastly. When the camels had finished drinking, he gave her a gold nose ring weighing half a shekel and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels. I mentioned that when Abraham bought the land, one acre was worth about four shekels. The servant gave Rebekah a very costly amount of gold. It was worth the equivalent of several acres of land. As the servant gave the gold, he asked Rebekah who she was. In verse 24, she says, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son that Milcah bore to Nahor. Then the servant was able to confirm that she was the one God had prepared. He bowed down and praised and worshipped God. Rebekah was very surprised to receive such a great amount of gold. A stranger gave her a great amount of gold for giving water to the camels, so she was very surprised. She ran to her house and told her mother about what happened. When she told her mother what happened, an amusing thing happened. We'll continue the story next week. I hope you will meditate upon God's work during the week. I'll see you next week. Goodbye.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.